1: Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 23rd of February 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy and this week our special guest is Fiona Panther. And Fiona is a PhD student and Joan Duffield Scholar at the Australian National University's Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics in Canberra, Australia. Fiona is going to tell us about positrons and thermonuclear supernovae in the galactic cores and introduce us to Fermi Bubbles. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup, And we'll be crossing to Tver in Russia again to speak with Dr. Nadezhda Shcherbakov. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of AstroBlogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Fiona.
2: Kia ora, Brendan. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you. It's great to be speaking today to Fiona Panther. She is a PhD student and Joan Duffield Scholar at the Australian National University's Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics in Canberra, Australia. And currently, Fiona is at a conference in Hobart, Tasmania. How's it going?
2: Yeah, very, very good. Yeah, we've had a good morning looking at various data processing techniques using the programming language Python, and I'm sure we'll have more exciting stuff coming up in the next few days.
1: Python is awesome. Now, let's get on with our interview, Fiona. Where did you grow up in England before you moved to New Zealand, and how dark were the skies there where you lived? And Tell us how you became interested in science and space, and what prompted you to study the sciences at university?
2: Yeah, so I was born in a county called Northumberland, which is in the very far north of England. And you might know Northumberland from the movie Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Ah. So Anik, yeah, so Annick Castle, which is quite close to where I first went to school, that was actually used as a film set for Harry Potter. <laughs> So, um, but no, the thing is with Northumberland is it's England's largest county. Yep. It's in the far north, just south of the Scottish border. And even though it's England's largest county, it has the lowest population density. Yep. Being quite rural means that you get a pretty dark sky up there. So when I was about nine or 10 years old, my dad would take me outside and he'd point out all the different constellations in the night sky and show me how to recognize them. And My parents also read to me as a kid, and one of the things that my dad read to me was Greek myths. It was actually through this Greek mythology, the connection to the constellations in the Northern Hemisphere that I got really interested in astronomy. And yeah, so just starting off at looking at the stars, of course, led to me asking constant questions about what are the stars, what is space, what is the sun, what are planets? And my parents, being scientists themselves, they could put up with endless questions. I mean, I could never say why to the point that they just gave up on me. (laughs) So they would always answer my questions. And I'd always come up with new ones. And I had great teachers at school as well that really fostered that passion for science from a really early age.
1: That's awesome. And then you moved over to New Zealand.
2: Yeah, so I was 15 when we moved to New Zealand. So I went from rural Northumberland to small-town New Zealand And it may sound like the change wasn't that big, but it was massive. (laughs) I went from living in the middle of nowhere to living in a town. School was, of course, very, very different. And I actually moved schools a couple of times while I was in New Zealand as well, because we didn't just settle in the one place. Yeah, so we did actually move when I was about 17 years old.
1: And then you went on to do a BSc Honours in Physics and Mathematics from the University of Auckland and completed that in 2014. And your Honours thesis was looking at general relativity and the centre of our Milky Way. And that piqued your interest in the unusual nature of our Galactic Centre. What did you find out about our Galactic Centre when you were doing your Honours degree?
2: Yeah, so I did my, uh, my Bachelor of Science at Auckland University. And I'd always been, my first few years there anyway, quite Intent on doing mathematics. I actually wanted to be a mathematician. And it was only towards the end of my third year that I began to realise maybe I wasn't quite so excited by maths as I was, and I really wanted to follow astronomy. And I was very lucky because during my time at the University of Auckland, we went from having no faculty who did astronomy to having three at the, so three actual faculty members. And when I was in my final year, I applied for a summer scholarship at the University of Auckland and I got taken on by Professor Richard. Easter. And the project he gave me was not at all the project that I had in mind. I wanted to do particle physics and mathematical particle physics. Yep. And what Professor Easter did is he gave me a project which was computational. And what I was doing is I was using a computer simulation to look at stars orbiting around the supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy. And I struggled for the first wee while. I wasn't very I had never done any computer programming at this point. So of course this was an <laughs> incredible challenge for me. But it was one that I really, really wanted to figure out. And what we looked at was something called the nuclear star cluster. So in the center of our galaxy, there is a supermassive black hole. That's about 4 million times the mass of our sun. Yep. And one of the reasons we know this is because when you look with an infrared telescope at the regions surrounding this black hole, you see hundreds of stars. And these hundreds of stars follow elliptical orbits, so like squashed circles yep. on the sky. And a group at UCLA, over about a 25-year period, so you know, they've been following these stars as long as I've been alive, They've been tracing their orbits. And what they found was that these stars orbit around this, all orbiting around the same point. But at that point, there is absolutely nothing for us to see, not in the infrared, not in the visible. The only l- real wavelength regions you can see something at that point those stars orbit are the radio waves yep. and the X ray, and a very small amount of gamma rays. And this was the first clue that there was some kind of compact source there, this supermassive black hole. And from the stars' orbits, we look at how fast those stars orbit, we look at the, the, the different properties of those orbits, and we can infer the mass of the supermassive black hole using exactly the same orbital dynamics that we use to calculate orbits in our solar system or trajectories of rockets we send off to Mars or other planets in our solar system.
1: Newtonian physics.
2: Exactly. Yeah. In fact, um, not just Newtonian physics, but Keplerian physics. Yep. Yeah. So that's um, awesome. Yeah. So all all of this physics that went into my computer models, following these stars, the base of it was all this physics and mathematics which had been done way back in the 1700s by Newton and Kepler. And then we added a twist. We asked, now, there's a supermassive black hole, which means there's something different about gravity in that region of the universe compared to, say, in our solar system. Yep. And the difference is that the gravitational attraction of the supermassive black hole is so great that it bends space and time. And what this causes is it causes the orbits to be ever so slightly perturbed. And this is, of course, Einstein's general relativity. Yep. And what we asked was, if we include this effect of general relativity, which has been neglected, will we ever see the orbits of the stars perturbed? Okay. Now, unfortunately, the answer was no. We don't actually see any effect, at least not on a human lifetime. You'd have to wait 10,000 years to see anything. We can wait. I'm sure we certainly
1: can. <laughs> okay, Fiona, thank you very much. Now, then you moved over to the Australian National University in Canberra. Why did that happen? And tell us a bit about that transition for you. Yes, yeah, so
2: I did one summer scholarship in Auckland and... Over the course of my honours, um, I was doing research. And when you're doing research, one of the things you need to do is you need to read papers which are being published in your field and on topics which are related to your field. And we find those through various online databases. And the more I read about our galactic centre, the more interested I got because our galactic centre is quite unusual in that there are a surprising number of massive stars in our galaxy. and We don't really know how they got there. Our galaxy center is quite quiescent. And what that means is that there's not very much um, activity, there's not very much activity, not very much material flowing out from the supermassive black hole. It kind of just sits there and it's mostly harmless. So there are lots and lots of things about our galactic center that are unusual. So you've got these massive stars being formed and mostly the, the black hole is quiet. And yet we see these huge outflows coming from the center of our galaxy. Okay. And these are called the Fermi Bubbles. Ah. And I got very, very interested in this. And I actually stumbled across some papers by my now supervisor, Dr. Roland Crocker, and the work that he'd done. And having done a summer scholarship, I was kind of on the on the lookout for something similar. And I saw that the Australian National University offered summer scholarships at the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. And whose project would be right on top of that list, but Dr. Roland Crocker's. Yep. So I emailed Roland and to be honest I wasn't actually expecting a reply because you know the ANU is very well regarded and his research is very well regarded and you know sometimes people don't have the time to reply to emails from you know an honest <laughs> student but no more than 5 minutes later did I send this email to him saying I was interested in his project but he emailed me back Not about the Fermi bubbles project, but he had something a bit bigger in mind. In fact, he asked me if I'd ever thought of doing a PhD because he had a project which could actually be stretched into doing a PhD. And that was looking at something else entirely, but kind of related, was that there's a lot of gamma rays coming from our galaxy and we don't know where those are coming from. And he has enlisted me to help him try and figure out where these gamma rays are coming from.
1: Fantastic. And now that you're based in Canberra, you're a member of the SkyMapper Telescope team. And that's based at ANU, as well as the Dark Energy Survey and the Related Spectroscopic Follow-Up Survey, OSDES. What are the aims of these surveys and how do these teams operate and how do these teams get organised so that they can collaborate effectively? I know some teams use wiki. How do you guys get organised for these survey teams?
2: Yeah, so I'll tell you a bit about SkyMapper first. I got involved in both of these because... Supernovae, so the deaths of stars, are directly related to my research on gamma rays. But SkyMapper is a supernova and transient survey, so a transient event in astronomy is one which lasts a short period of time, anything from a fraction of a second to a couple of years. Yep. And SkyMapper is a telescope which is based at Siding Spring Observatory in New South Wales. And its job is to survey the entire southern sky. So every few nights, what SkyMapper does is it takes images of the entire sky that is visible to it. And then once it's finished, it goes back and does it again. And what we're doing is we're looking for things which change. So the SkyMapper team's not very big. It's just a small group of us at ANU. And we're led by, um, by Professor Brian Schmidt, the uh, winner of the Nobel Prize. That's and, right, yep. Yeah, and what the supernova part of the survey, what we're trying to do is we're trying to collect an unbiased sample of nearby type 1a supernova. Okay. So the unbiased Thing means that we're not looking at specific galaxies waiting for a supernova to go off. We're just going over the whole sky and it doesn't matter where the supernova happens. We take a record of it. We note down where it occurred. We note down what type of supernova it was and then we move on. So other nearby supernova surveys, they've actually looked at specific galaxies for a specific length of time, just waiting for a supernova to go off. And this adds some kind of biases into your results. Okay. And that can affect so when you're trying to make say distance measurements it can affect the accuracy of those distances.
1: Very good. I have noticed that there's people predicting supernovas as some significant one supposed to happen in 2022.
2: I've not heard about that one. Predicting things in astronomy, well, it, it's quite challenging because when, a, when an astronomer says, oh, that might happen soon, it can mean it might happen tomorrow or it might happen in the next couple of million years.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I took that with a grain of salt. And that's why in science we love to have replication of results.
2: Exactly. Although replicating supernovae can be a little tricky because once it's blown up, it's not going to blow up again.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Now, the main focus of your PhD is around positrons and thermonuclear supernovae. Can you give us a brief primer on what positrons are and what thermonuclear supernovae are and why are you researching these phenomena?
2: Yeah. So positrons. So, has any if, you know, any of your listeners will probably be familiar with the Dan Brown book? I think it's Angels and Demons. Okay. And in this book what happens is people break into the Large Hadron Collider and they steal a vial of antimatter. <laughs> now, this makes antimatter sound like some kind of science fiction thing, but it's not. It's actually real. So what it is, is you say you've got an electron and those are all around of us. They make up the atoms of pretty much everything in this world that we that we touch. But the electron has kind of evil twin, if you like, and that's the positron. Yep. And I say evil twin mainly because if an electron and positron come very close to one another, what can happen is they will annihilate. And what that means is that they interact, they disappear from existence, and out come two gamma rays, so very, very high energy radiation. And normally, you don't really see positrons on Earth, so if you wanted to collect a lot of positrons in one place, you'd have to completely isolate them from electrons. But remember that everything around us is made up of electrons, it's almost impossible to do. So here on Earth, positrons will annihilate almost instantly, but in space, positrons can live for a very long time, they can actually live for millions of years purely because space is so empty and it takes them a very long time to actually find an electron to annihilate. Yep. Now, what's the connection between positrons and exploding stars? Well, positrons, they don't really just pop out of nothing in space. So we do observe a lot of positrons in our galaxy. And the way we do that is we look at the gamma rays the annihilating positrons emit. Yep. And this puzzle that my supervisor, uh, Roland Crocker, has you know, brought me into helping him solve is trying to understand where billions and billions and billions and billions of positrons are coming from that annihilate in our galaxy. This has been a problem that's been around for 50 years since we first saw the gamma rays coming from annihilating positrons. We've never understood where they've come from. So this brings me to thermonuclear supernovae. So these are the incredible explosions that mark the end of the lives of relatively low mass binary stars. Yep. So what you have is you have two stars. They start off their lives, and they're just using hydrogen, minding their own business, and they're orbiting around one another. Now, over their lifetime, these stars can actually become close enough to one another to transfer material from one star to the other. Yes. And this causes the stars to draw closer and closer together, but they're still they're just minding their own business. And this will continue all the way through the stars' lives, and then they'll run out of hydrogen, then they'll need to fuse helium. Eventually, they'll run out of helium, and then they'll run out of heavier and heavier elements until what you're left with is, usually the model we work with, is you're left with two stars which are just made up of carbon and oxygen cores, and these are called white dwarfs. Yep. So these stars are actually just glowing with the residual heat and light that was created during the earlier part of their lives. They're not actually fusing material anymore. And if you have a white dwarf star just isolated on its own, that star is not going to do anything. It's just going to fade and cool over billions of years. However, if you have two white dwarfs orbiting one another, they'll gradually spiral closer and closer together. Yep. And when they meet, what happens is one star will be accreted or essentially absorbed onto the other star. Now, when the more massive star reaches a critical mass of one point four times the mass of the sun, this is what we call the Chandrasekhar limit. Yep. And what happens there is that the material on the star, on the surface of the star, the carbon is being put under so much pressure that it causes the carbon atoms to fuse, okay? But it causes the carbon atoms to fuse in a runaway reaction that we call a thermonuclear runaway. And this is usually the point of detonation. So your carbon fuses faster and faster and faster and faster. It's like throwing petrol on a bonfire. Yes. Suddenly you'll get a massive shockwave And the whole star will blow itself apart and become gravitationally unbound. Material gets flung off. But that runaway nuclear fusion has created lots of heavy elements. It's created things like nickel, which is incredibly radioactive. And the gamma rays which come from the decaying nickel light up all of that ejector. And that's what we see as the Type Ia supernova, that incredibly bright point of light that can outshine its entire host galaxy.
1: Fantastic. Now, let's just go back a bit. Can you give us a brief idea of what Fermi bubbles are? And we'll also remind our listeners they can find out themselves by going to Fiona's fabulous blog at antimatter.space.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I've written, I wrote a few weeks ago, a fairly short article about the Fermi bubbles. And what these are is they are the Fermi bubbles, called the Fermi bubbles, are unique to our galaxy. But in general, bubbles are not unique to our galaxy. So bubbles, they occur all the way through space. You have everything from bubbles on a quantum scale, something called quantum foam, right the way up to the galaxy scale. Yep. And what, what, something must be blowing a bubble and the Fermi bubbles what they are is they are huge gamma ray and radio and x-ray lobes so if you imagine our galaxy is like a, a dinner plate Above and below the very center of that plate, there are two huge bubbles, okay? And they rise up as far away from the disk of the galaxy as we are from the center of the galaxy. So they're absolutely massive structures. They're about 40 plus thousand light years from end to end, from north to south. And something is blowing them up, something's inflating them. And what we think that maybe is either the star formation going on at the center of the galaxy, potentially, or there may have been a point in the past where our galaxy's supermassive black hole has done an almighty burp and sprayed a lot of material just in uh, bipolar outflows north and south of the galactic center. We're not sure which one it is. There are arguments for one or the other. And what we see is we see, we mainly see gamma rays. So the Fermi bubbles were discovered in 2010 by the NASA Fermi satellite. And what they found was they found an excess of high energy gamma rays making these bubbles, those uh, gamma rays are probably coming from cosmic rays. So these are tiny subatomic particles which are accelerated to very high energies in events like the uh, driving of a wind by a burst of supernova activity, or that equally they could be driven by this outflow from the the galactic center supermassive black hole. So we're not sure which hypothesis it is. All we know is that these bubbles, they're coming from something. And they're not they're not unique to our galaxy. Many other galaxies have similar structures. Nearby galaxies there are several nearby galaxies which have active supermassive black holes, which are actively burping out lots and lots of material. Cosmic rays, lots and lots of things like hydrogen, but there are also galaxies nearby which are forming lots and lots of stars and producing lots and lots of supernovae and the winds from these supernovae collectively blow up bubbles either side of the disks of these galaxies.
1: That is sensational. And if people would like to go and see a a great image of these Fermi bubbles, just go to Fiona's blog at antimatter.space. Now, let's move on. I notice you've been doing a lot of observing recently, and is this solo work? So tell us about the 2.3-meter telescope you've been using and the other instruments you use and also the software that you use to interrogate the data you generate.
2: Yeah, so recently I've been using the ANU's 2.3-metre telescope. That's also based up at Siding Spring. And I've been using this to observe the galaxies which host a very peculiar type of supernova. And it's these peculiar types of supernovae we think are producing positrons. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the types of stars that produce these supernovae to help us better understand the rate at which they occur in our galaxy. Once we know that... It can try and figure out how many positrons they might be supplying to our galaxy. So, for me, observing it doesn't have to be solo, it can be really sociable. So, for several nights, I've been joined by one of my supervisors, uh, Dr. Ivo Zuckenzahl. I've also been joined by my fellow PhD student, Anna Zavaro, and I've been joined by my undergraduate student, Ella Wang. And we've been working together to take data on these. So, it's maybe not as romantic as a lot of people imagine, you know using a telescope you you peer through the eyepiece you see this beautiful galaxy and then you carefully draw an intricate picture (laughs) not quite what we're actually looking at Yep. so the reality of the images you see when you look at an astronomical image which has been taken with a telescope even like the 2.3 meter is not the reality of what you see on the screen what we're actually using is a technique called integral field spectroscopy And what this does is it takes a spatial image of your galaxy. So your spatial image has pixels. So every single pixel in this image, it generates a spectrum. And what you end up with is an image composed of spaxels, that spectral pixels. And from this information, we can measure things like abundances of different elements. We can use that then to infer things like the age of the stars. We can infer how many stars this galaxy is forming. And we can also infer the metal content of these stars. So very, very clever technique. But what you end up seeing on the screen is you see these Black and white strips which have a whole bunch of stripes on them. And all of this information is meaningless until it's processed. Yep. Now with the 2.3 meter telescope and the instrument I'm using, which is called Wifes, that's the wide field spectrograph, there's a fantastic reduction pipeline. So you start off with lots of data, and then we call the process of actually making that data usable is called reduction. So you basically take away all the rubbish. Yes. And then you're left with something usable at the end. Now, I don't have to go to too many great lengths to actually go through this process because there is a pipeline all which is already being developed, and yep. that uses the programming language Python, yep. which is it's very very adaptable. It's very very easy and easy and user friendly compared to some of the other techniques you can actually use to reduce this data. At the end of running the reduction pipelines, we take our raw data files, then we run a particular script in Python. What comes out at the end is something called a data cube, and that's made up of individual pixels representing spatial points on an image. So just imagine, say, an image of a galaxy, and then break it up into little squares, Yep, and there are various different pieces of software. I use something called Qfits View, and what I can do is I can select individual pixels on my image and display the spectrum which is associated with that.
1: Fantastic. And from that,
2: from that spectrum, I can measure anything like the age of the stars. I can measure how fast the stars are forming. I can measure whether or not there's any gas around the stars, which is being excited by the light coming from the stars. It's an incredibly powerful tool.
1: That's awesome. Now, let's get on to the timeline for your PhD thesis. What pressures are on you as a PhD candidate and how do you deal with those pressures yourself, Fiona?
2: Yeah, there, there is a lot of pressure, sometimes associated with being a graduate student. So here in Australia... We have three years to finish our PhD, right from the date you start to the date that you hand in your thesis and actually walk out the door with your silly hat on and your nice big degree certificate. There is a there is a lot to do in those three years. Generally, you know, there are lots and lots of different ways to deal with the stress. I always find that talking to my colleagues helps, talking to supervisors helps. I mean, a lot of people might be familiar with what's called imposter syndrome, and this is the feeling. That you get that you don't belong or that your work isn't good enough or even the feeling that you're just pretending to know things and you're gonna get found out and I think all academics experience this feeling to some extent and talking about it is a really big thing that can help it's actually a really good idea if you're doing a PhD to even get in touch with a psychologist or a counselor because they can really help you deal with these feelings and start to understand them because fighting against them isn't always the best thing and hiding them definitely isn't a good thing either. So everyone goes through this. All PhD students are experiencing similar stresses and strains. And the best thing that we can do is actually to listen to one another, to talk about it, and to come up with some kinds of coping strategies, even as
1: a team. Excellent. And there's no substitute for talking with a professional. And that's why we talk to you guys here at Astrophys. I notice also that you do a lot of outreach work and you've done a lot of publishing and posting of fantastic information about astronomy. Tell us about the outreach work that you did at Uluru, for example.
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm part of an organisation. <laughs> called Castro, so we're the ARC Centre for Research Excellence in All-Sky Astrophysics. And one of the, the really exciting opportunities that Castro offer is our partnership with Voyage's Ayers Rock Resort, and that's at Uluru. And what we do is an astronomer Professional astrophysicists get sent out to Uluru for two weeks and out there, you know, connecting with the general public, telling them all about the amazing work that our members of Castro have been doing and just getting people excited about the universe. And there's two reasons we do this, and one of them is that the skies out there are spectacular. I have never seen anything like it in my entire life. You can stand out there under the light of the Milky Way, and you will have a shadow being cast by starlight, because it's just so dark, and the light from those stars is so incredibly intense. Now, the other incredible thing about going to Uluru is that you stop connecting with people out there that you would never, ever normally get to connect with. So often when I'm running outreach events in Canberra and connecting with people at the observatory, we've got an audience which they're already quite interested and excited by science, otherwise, you know, why would you come up to check out some of the cool exhibits we've got at the visitor centre? But out at Uluru, we just have people just, they're enjoying their holiday. They're not out there to learn or to find out more about astronomy. They're just you know, enjoying the culture, they're enjoying the history, they're enjoying learning more and more about that part of Australia. So when you can say to someone who's just heading off to the cafe for lunch, hey, you want to come and check out Venus through a telescope during the day? Yep. You're getting someone excited about science that maybe would not be exposed to that in you know a normal outreach setting.
1: And the great thing about that is that, A lot of those people go home, especially the grey nomads, and they (laughs) transfer that excitement to their grandchildren.
2: Yeah. In fact, we got lots of questions when we were out there about, you know, people would look through a telescope for the first time and say, hey, I need one of these things. Where do I get one? Yep. And if you are that kind of person who's wanting to get involved in amateur astronomy, my suggestion is that you don't rush out to Australian Geographic and buy one of their telescopes, okay? Take a step back. What to do is to connect with your local astronomical society. So if you do a Google, just looking for amateur astronomical societies in your area, you will be bound to find a group of people passionate and excited about amateur astronomy. And those are the best people to chat to when you want to find out what sort of equipment to get. Personally, I would actually advise if you're just starting to get into amateur astronomy, get a good star atlas and then get a pair of decent binoculars. Not ones too heavy to hold not ones with too great a magnification, just ones which are kind of just big enough to comfortably be able to hold up with both hands. And what you're going to be able to do with those is you're going to be able to see a wider field of view. It's easier to find your way around the sky. And you can even see things like Jupiter's moons. You can see detail in the Orion Nebula. And it's a really good way to get started without the cost and the tricky operation of one of these fancy telescopes.
1: Fantastic advice, Fiona. Now, the microphone is all yours, now you've got the option to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science and education and astronomy.
2: Oh, this is a tricky one, there's so many things I could mention here. What I'd like to mention is really in the theme of where I am right now. So, I'm at uh, something called the ANITA workshop, this is Australian theoretical astrophysics meeting, and... One thing that we're really working on this week is we're working on better understanding scientific computers. And many, many people these days are using computers and they're becoming more and more flash and more fancy. And I love this. I love the fact that there are many ways to get involved using computers which are very user-friendly. But if I have anybody listening to me right now, young or old, one thing I really advise getting to better understand is to actually understand not only how the computer works, but... Why not have a go at actually doing some computer programming? Now, I used to be very, very scared of actually doing computer programming, and now I'm a computational astrophysicist. I spend my entire time writing computer programs. And one thing I really love is seeing people developing computer literacy and realizing how much control they have over a machine, which may just be a series of fancy, you know, shiny buttons. So yeah, if I could advise anyone to, you know, do anything to improve the quality of their life and actually their interactions with technology, is to learn more about the components which make it up. Learn more about how the apps that you love actually work, and maybe even have a go at developing your own app for fun, or maybe you can even turn it into a slightly profitable hobby.
1: Fantastic, Fiona. Now, I noticed that at this conference, you're presenting a paper on Thursday. Give us a skinny on that abstract. Yeah, so I'm
2: going to be presenting the very first results of some work that I've been doing. I don't want to give away too much because this is actually still a paper in preparation. <laughs> but one thing that we've been looking at is connecting together this antimatter idea with the Fermi bubbles. And what I've been asking for a little while now is I've been asking What if positrons, antimatter, can hitch a ride on the outflow, which is producing the Fermi bubbles? Yep. And if they can hitch a ride, does what we see of them annihilating match up with what is actually observed? So what I'm doing, I'm working in such a way that I I generate this physical, plausible model, and then I look to see if it replicates reality. And this this is a different way, perhaps, to the way some astronomers work these days. I I like to think that it's... equally good, equally valuable, um, that rather than trying to replicate reality, you start with some kind of reality and then see if the end result matches up. So I don't want to give away too much. Um, the paper will probably be out sort of cool. to the middle and end of next year. But that's kind of a brief overview of some of the things that I'll be talking about.
1: Thank you very much. And what we'll do is we'll invite you back again in 10 or 12 months' time and hear all the latest news. Now, here's another question for you. What plans do you have for your upcoming birthday celebration?
2: Oh, you know, I haven't really thought about it much, Um which means my car insurance premium is going to decrease. Um, (laughs) There's adulthood for you. (laughs) Um, No, um, we'll probably just uh, have a few drinks with friends uh, somewhere, find a nice craft beer place in Canberra and, yeah, have have a few drinks with friends.
1: Thank you very much, Fiona Panther, for speaking with us today.
2: No, thank you for having me, Brendan. It's been wonderful to talk. Bye now. Bye-bye.
1: That was Fiona Panther. Joan Duffield Scholar and PhD candidate at the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. And that's a great career to follow. You can follow her blog at antimatter.space and on Twitter. Just search for at Fee Panther. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to talk with you again, Ian. I know there's lots of interesting things happening in the sky and there's lots of great research happening. So tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky this week?
3: Uh, Well, it's more that what's on the horizon this week. (laughs) Uh, Venus,
1: which has been our brilliant candle for
3: so many weeks during the summer months, Yes. is now rapid heading towards the horizon. Yep. If you've got a telescope or even a strong binoculars at the moment, you'll be able to see Venus as a really obvious crescent. By the time we get the uh, first week of March, Venus will be a wire-thin crescent and will look absolutely amazing. Uh, getting a photograph of it may be a bit of a problem. I tried to get some photographs earlier this week. And all I did was overexpose Venus enormously. What about binoculars on a tripod, Ian? Binoculars on tripod, yes, but that should work. If you've got a good set of binoculars, Venus is really big and should be easily visible. as a crescent in binoculars with good optics. If your optics aren't good, the crescent gets really distorted. And on the 28th of February and the 1st of March, you'll have a nice little conjunction of the Moon with Venus. So you'll have crescent Venus not very close but close enough to Venus so that if you've got a good set of binoculars you can uh, look at the crescent Venus and then sweep over to the crescent moon unfortunately they're too far apart to be in the same binocular field which would have been really cool also on the 1st of March uh, the crescent moon forms a triangle with the crescent Venus and Mars which will look very nice And then the night after that, on March the 2nd, you'll have this line-up of Venus, Mars and crescent moon, uh, which will again look very pretty. Unfortunately, because Venus is quite low in the twilight, you'll need a a nice level horizon and and you'll need to be looking around about half an hour after sunset to see them. Mars won't really be apparent until a little bit later and when Venus is really uh, close to the horizon, but it will be something very uh, good to look at. Now, our other nice evening event is the close approach of Mars to Uranus. Now, Uranus is coming closer and closer to Mars, and on the 26th and 27th, Mars and Uranus be within a binocular field, and indeed on the 27th, they'll uh, fit in quite nicely into a low-power telescope field. Now, it'll look quite... Uh, disappointing really. At modest uh, magnifications Uranus, it will look just, you can see this that it's just a disk. A tiny dot-like disk. And Mars is much more exciting. It's now well past opposition when it was closest to Earth and it's a really a, a tiny little disk. So they won't look really exciting in a telescope but it'll be interesting just to see the blue-green Uranus uh, not far from the orange Mars, and you watch it in binoculars over several nights and then accumulating on the 27th, but you get Mars and Uranus in the same telescope field. Again, because Mars, it's like Venus, is getting close to the horizon, you know, you'll have to have a, a telescope can get right down to low uh, elevations. Yep. But uh, if you have a, a telescope like that, that'll be quite nice. See, that's the all the evening action for the, the next couple of the weeks yep. or, or early evening twilight action in the late evening uh, our friend Jupiter is rising higher and higher in the evening sky yes and that Jupiter um, is rising before midnight not really good for telescopic observation until about one o'clock in the morning. And by that I mean that if you want to have some really good views of Jupiter's clouds, uh, and the red spot before that is really a bit too low to the horizon to, um, and, and the atmospheric turbulence bit here. Uh, of course, you can see Jupiter's moons quite easily. Okay. There's some really nice, uh, Jupiter moon events, uh, happening this weekend on the 25th. If you're up around about one o'clock in the morning or a little bit after midnight, depending, uh, where you are on, uh, in the international time zones, you'll see Europa disappear into the shadow of uh, Jupiter. So if you're watching Jupiter, Europa will settle up to it and then disappear before it gets near the disk of Jupiter. And the other, the, the other moons are huddled around it will look quite nice. For example, uh, Callisto is just above Jupiter's pole when Europa is doing its vanishing act. So that will look uh, very nice indeed. So if you're up early in the morning, Jupiter will well repay your attention. Excellent. And for those of you who are up very early in the morning, Saturn is looking fantastic below Scorpius. For some time, uh, Saturn was very close to Antares, the bright red star that forms the heart of the Scorpion, that is Scorpius. Mm -hmm. And now it's moved a bit further away, but still it's very easy to find if you're out looking. You'll see in the the early morning before dawn, you'll see uh, uh, Scorpius as a very obvious upside-down question mark and with a bright red star at its heart. And below that, the next uh, brightest object is Saturn. And uh, even without a telescope, uh, it looks very beautiful. But if you have a telescope, Saturn is looking very nice. Its rings are opening up very nicely That's now high high enough that if you're up about 5 o'clock in the morning, as we all are, um, (laughs) it looks really, really nice. This week is a good week for its moon, Titan. Titan is unlike uh, unlike, uh, Jupiter's moons where the bright Galilean satellites orbit pretty close to Jupiter and you can be easily seen. Titan tends to orbit further out and quite often it's a bit hard to detect uh, far away. Interestingly, this week we've got Jupiter's moons doing their uh, nice uh, movements and we've got thin crescent Venus and we were only just past the birthday of Galileo Galileo uh, but, uh, when he turned his telescope onto uh, the heavenly bodies. He not only described the craters of the moon but he also watched the phases of Venus and the movements of the moons of Jupiter as part of his argument that the uh, Sun was the center of the solar system and not Earth and that Venus had to be orbiting the Sun and of course the um, you know, the moon circular, uh, circling uh, Jupiter uh, showed that other objects could be the center of attraction to other planetary bodies and, and that, that there was no necessity for Earth to be the only center of movement heavenly bodies.
1: Very good. And at some stage, Ian, we'll probably have to talk about phases and explain why it is that some planets have phases and others don't appear to. We most certainly will. And this could be very interesting because
3: we're all waiting on Netflix at the moment for the big announcement from NASA about extrasolar planets. We've been able to detect phases on extrasolar planets by the way they're... The light of the entire system changes as the planets approach their sun uh, uh, or central star and move away from it. And in some cases, we've been able to determine what's in the atmosphere of uh, these planets. Indeed, the, um, there was the first detection of water from uh, one of the planets around 51 Cancerite, which is one of the first exoplanetary solar systems discovered, which was pretty amazing. Fantastic, Ian. There's been a beautiful animation going around of 17 years of observations of stars orbit around the central mass of the Milky Way galaxy yes. and showing whipping around uh, incredibly fast. <laughs> you know, 17 years you can see them these things all, uh, orbiting the central black hole. It's amazing. I'm just thinking of just in terms of how far we've come in such a short time be able to take movie, movies of stars orbiting a, a putative black hole at the centre of the galaxy, that's that's pretty mind-boggling.
1: And almost as awesome as the patience of scientists. <laughs> yeah, well, you've, yeah, you've got to have the patience to keep on imaging for
3: 17 years to pick up all of these things.
1: Exactly. Okay, Ian, well, we'll sign off now. Okay. Thank you very much, Ian, Astroblog. Musgrave and tell our listeners to go to astroblogger.blogspot.com.au or just Google Astroblog. It's a fantastic blog. It's got wonderful information about what's up in the night sky this week. So thank you, Ian Musgrave. Thank you, Brendan, for having me on. And this week, keep your eyes on the horizon. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. Cheers, no worries. And, of course, our first item is the much-anticipated NASA news conference, which happened just a couple of hours ago. And this press release is from JPL. NASA Telescope reveals largest batch of Earth-size habitable zone planets around single star. NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope has revealed the first known system of seven Earth-size planets around a single star. Three of these planets are firmly located in the habitable zone, the area around the parent star where a rocky planet is most likely to have liquid water. The discovery sets a new record for greatest number of habitable zone planets found around a single star outside our solar system. All of these seven planets could have liquid water key to life as we know it, under the right atmospheric conditions, but the chances are highest with the three in the habitable zone. This discovery could be a significant piece in the puzzle of finding habitable environments and places that are conducive to life, said Thomas Zurbuchen, Associate Administrator of the Agency Science Mission Directorate in Washington. Answering the question, are we alone? is a top science priority, and finding so many planets like these for the first time in the habitable zone is a remarkable step forward towards that goal. At about forty light years, or two hundred thirty five trillion miles from Earth, the system of planets is relatively close to us, in the constellation of Aquarius. Because they are located outside our solar system, these planets are scientifically known as exoplanets. The exoplanet system is called TRAPPIST-1, named for the Transiting Planets and Planetesimal Small Telescope in Chile. In May 2016, researchers using the TRAPPIST announced they had discovered three planets in the system. Assisted by several ground-based telescopes, including the ESO's Very Large Telescope, Spitzer confirmed the existence of two of these planets and discovered five additional ones, increasing the number of known planets in this system to seven. The new results were published today in the journal Nature and announced at a news conference earlier at NASA headquarters in Washington. Using the Spitzer data, the team precisely measured the sizes of the seven planets and developed first estimates of the masses of six of them, allowing their density to be estimated. Based on their densities, all of the TRAPPIST-1 planets are likely to be rocky. Further observations will not only help determine whether they are rich in water, but also possibly reveal whether any could have liquid water on their surfaces. The mass of the seventh and furthest exoplanet has not yet been estimated. Scientists believe it could be an icy, snowball-like world, but further observations are needed. The Seven Wonders of TRAPPIST-1 are the first Earth-sized planets that have been found orbiting this kind of star. In contrast to our Sun, the TRAPPIST-1 star, classified as an ultra-cool dwarf, is about the size of Jupiter and is so cool that liquid water could survive on planets orbiting very close to it, closer than is possible on planets in our solar system. All seven of the TRAPPIST-1 planetary orbits are closer to their host star than Mercury is to our sun. The planets are also very close to each other. If a person was standing on one of the planet's surfaces, they could gaze up and potentially see geological features or clouds of neighbouring worlds, which would sometimes appear larger than the moon in Earth's sky. The planets may also be tidally locked to their star, which means the same side of a planet is always facing the star, therefore each side is either in perpetual day or night. This could mean they have weather patterns totally unlike those on Earth, such as strong winds blowing from the day side to the night side and extreme temperature changes. Spitzer, an infrared telescope that trails Earth as it orbits the sun, was well suited for studying TRAPPIST-1 because the star glows brightest in infrared light whose wavelengths are longer than the eye can see. In 2016, Spitzer observed TRAPPIST-1 Nearly continuously for 500 hours, Spitzer is uniquely positioned in its orbit to observe enough crossings or transits of the planets in front of a host star to reveal the complex architecture of the system. Engineers optimized Spitzer's ability to observe transiting planets during Spitzer's WARM mission, which began after the spacecraft's coolant ran out, as planned after the first five years of operation. This is the most exciting result we have seen in the 14 years of Spitzer operations. Following this Spitzer discovery, NASA's Hubble Space Telescope has initiated the screening of four of the planets, including the three inside the habitable zone. These observations aim at assessing the presence of puffy, hydrogen-dominated atmospheres, typical for gaseous worlds like Neptune around these planets. Spitzer, Hubble, and Kepler will help astronomers plan for follow-up studies using NASA's upcoming James Webb Space Telescope, launching in 2018. With much greater sensitivity, Webb will be able to detect the chemical fingerprints of water, methane, oxygen, ozone, and other components of a planet's atmosphere even at those distances. Webb will also analyse planets' temperatures and surface pressures, key factors in assessing their habitability. Watch this space. From news.com. Science. Space. Dark matter halls are stripping galaxies of their gas lifeblood by Jamie Seidel from News Corp Australia. An unknown force is sucking the lifeblood out of galaxies across the known universe. But... Australian astronomers have uncovered new clues of a dark intergalactic presence sending star clusters to an early grave. ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Western Australia, has published a paper in the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society examining an unexpectedly prevalent phenomenon where the lifeblood is being stripped out of otherwise healthy galaxies. If you remove the fuel for star formation, then you effectively kill the galaxy and turn it into a dead object, says study leader Toby Brown, PhD candidate at ICRA and Swinburne University. The new evidence implicates a mysterious unseen force which is only known to exist because it must, dark matter. The observable universe accounts for just 5% of the amount of matter needed for the universe to operate the way it does. Roughly 27% of the remainder is dark matter. The rest is dark energy. The idea goes that all galaxies are embedded in clouds of dark matter called halos. These are inferred through the effects of their gravity on galaxy structures and movements. But the halos are not fixed, Mr Brown says. Galaxies can pass through different halos of different strengths and sizes during their lifetimes. As galaxies fall through these larger halos, the superheated intergalactic plasma between them removes their gas in a fast-acting process called ram pressure stripping, Mr Brown says. What ram pressure stripping does is bop the galaxy on the head and remove its gas very quickly, in the order of tens of millions of years and, astronomically speaking, that's very fast. It deprives galaxies of their basic building blocks. If you remove the fuel of star formation, then you effectively kill the galaxy and turn it into a dead object. See you in two weeks. Bye now.
0: Radio wave!